0: No longer will woman to satire be dupe, for she is determined to figure sans jupe, and once she is roused she will not be outdone, nor stop at this one reformation alone, for mark me, proud man, she'll not yield thee a jot, but soon will become even a true sans culotte, and flourish away ere the ending of spring sans jupe, sans culotte, in short sans anything. Savva et sa ira, liberty and equality forever.
1: These are the fighting words of Dorothea Herbert, 18th century poet, writer, artist, songstress and proud spinster. Dorothea was born in the late 1760s in Carrick-on-Shore, where there wasn't much liberté for women. Some say she was a woman before her time. I think she
2: was unique.
1: Quite a girl, wasn't oh, she? Oh, wow,
2: she was, yeah. Unique, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Johnny Fitzpatrick, local historian and fan, is not alone. As well as her collection of poetry, the work she's best remembered for is her memoir, Retrospections, covering the period from 1770 to 1806, after the French Revolution, when there was great hope for a more equal world for women as well as men. Her original handwritten book is held in the library of Trinity College, Dublin, where it's minded and treasured by assistant librarian Dr
3: Jane Maxwell. This is such an unusual artefact to have survived and she herself is an unusual person and there are so few records of uh, women from the 18th century surviving anyway so that when you have somebody like her leaving behind an artefact like this, it's kind of unprecedented. It's just, it is unique. It's unheralded, it's unexpected, it's unhoped for, you know, because lots and lots of women, like herself, survived and thrived in the 18th century and wrote their letters, wrote their journals, drew their pictures, and they all are lost. So between the artifact itself and the woman herself, uh, she really is a doozy.
1: The story of Dorothea Herbert is fascinating. Her work lay undiscovered, possibly hidden for over 200 years, because bits of it were embarrassing. Controversial, may be considered too flighty and domestic for some historians, or because she declared herself to be an outcast. Her writings are a surprising insight into Anglo Irish society in the late 1700s in Tipperary. There is a wonderful sense of acceptance
4: about almost everything sexual behaviour, although for Herbert, like her courtship of John Rowe is sitting beside each other, right? It's not doesn't get any more any more
1: intimate than that. According to Dr. Mary Breen of University College Cork, though, there was an openness and realization at the time that people's relationships and behaviors could take many forms. This huge tolerance for other people's behavior, the the
4: marriages, the breakup of marriages, the um, you know, the unusual people who come to visit, the cross-dressing, the not knowing if, you know, the, this this itinerant guy who drifts in when he dresses as a woman, he looks like a man. When he dresses as a man, he looks like a woman. And they don't know if he's a man or a woman. Um, and then her cousin Ned Eyre, uh, who is as camp as you could possibly get.
1: Diary writing was quite the thing to do at the time, and as well as her memoir, there's also a collection of diary fragments, which is also preserved in Trinity College. Dorothea writes about the latest Paris fashions, about relationships with servants, social occasions, the delicacies they ate at parties and at home, who's related to who, and about outrageous practical jokes and a seemingly endless stream of visitors. You find
4: that, you know, Wolfe Tone kept a diary, you find that um, Daniel O'Connell kept a diary. These are all roughly the same period. So they were keeping diaries and writing about themselves. But the big difference between the women and the men, uh, when they were writing, men wrote about how to make friends and influence people, and women wrote about domestic affairs. And the contrast between them is amazing. You know, how could that be history? But of course it's a more important part of history than anything, because it's how ordinary people coped with 1798.
1: Dorothea's writings also show a woman who used her writing to express her feelings, even when no-one was listening. A technique recommended by Anne Tannum, poet and creative writing
2: coach. I think Dorothea wrote the memoir, like everybody writes memoir, first of all to explain to herself who she was and what she was going through. And then that, that secondary reason of... Explained to her family her mental illness and hoping perhaps that they might be able to relate to her uh, better.
1: They also provided a wellspring for her storytelling.
2: 1779,
0: Chapter 15th, A Dublin Reception When I arrived at my aunt's house, number 7 Gloucester Street, I was as bad as when I first set out for which I was reprimanded by good Mrs Fleming, who declared I was a mere rustic and transgressed all the rules of good breeding. The first thing Mrs Fleming did was to give me a complete scrubbing from top to toe as a quarantine from the land of potatoes. My trunk was then searched and every article criticised. My mother's fine homemade linen was deemed too coarse. My rich flowered cottons chosen by the croony amateurs of Carrick were deemed vulgar and unwearable. In short, I experienced the greatest mortification whilst they dissected my Carrick finery of which I was not a little proud. Mrs. Fleming immediately bought me two or three morning gowns, and I was then deemed decent to appear before my dancing master, my drawing master, and my music master.
3: I think she was some character.
1: Yeah. Why do you say that? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. She's. I mean, say
3: uh, Jane Austen was was fiction. This is the real thing. I think she was writing down as an elderly woman what happened. She, she, she loved her, her, her youth. That's when her, her best times. But it's at the end, it's, it's sad.
1: Dorothea was born in the late 1760s in carrick on shore She's long gone, but not forgotten. Jennifer Patrick is my oh, name. Okay, I believe you're an expert. Bit of an expert on Dorothea. Oh, right? I
3: won't say expert, but I'm very interested in her. Why? Why? I don't know why. Just, just, just have After read her book several times. <laughs> I'm after getting really into Dor- the... Uh, yeah. Yeah.
1: So where is she buried? She's, she's over here. here. Her father, Nicholas Herbert, was the rector of St Nicholas's church here in carrick shore She was the eldest of nine children, and she's buried no more than six feet away from us. I think it's from the family plot originally. Oh, it's quite there.
3: big isn't it? Yeah, yeah. with a lot of them there, mother and father is there, and her brother John Atway is there, and her two sisters, and herself. One year I was out here on a, on a morning, it was a nice morning, the sun was shining, and I saw Herbert written, but then, that's it then. There must be railings around that I'm sure, in, in its day. Yeah.
1: It's quite, it's probably the biggest one here, is it the family I think, plot? I think so, yeah, it looks like it, yeah. yeah. Although she's been gone for almost 200 years, her work has only come to light since 1929 and her fame and reputation continue to grow. Her frustrations at the confining role of women and the curse of spinsterhood came through in her work, Retrospections of an Outcast, and in much of her poetry. But Dorothea didn't confine herself to writing. Wasn't she supposed to have written an opera as well? She had lots of material. She says
4: herself she had a whole series of manuscripts uh, that she had prepared Mm -hmm. as though they were published. Mm -hmm. Um, But all we have now extant, as you know, we have the um, retrospections, we have the collection of poetry and then just the diary fragments that come after it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But the poetry collection is completely finished and presented as though for publication.
1: Dr Mary Breen from the School of English at University College Cork wrote her doctoral thesis on the works of Dorothea Herbert. She's an expert on Irish women writers of the 18th century and has led outreach workshops in Carrick and Shore about Dorothea's work.
4: So I suppose the thing that attracted me first to Herbert's work is the fact that she is literary, uh, that she reads copiously, uh, that she displays her reading in her writing. And just to show you what I mean by that, uh, when she prepares her retrospections for publication, as she does, illustrates it with watercolors, uh, has uh, quotations from Milton, Shakespeare, Pope, from the the Spectator, uh, heading every chapter. Every chapter is named, it has a heading, it has a number, and the That whole paratext that we recognise around writing of the period is very evident in her work. So if we look at the opening page of Retrospections as she prepared it herself, it's titled The Works of Dorothea Herbert, consisting of plays, poems, novels and biography in four volumes adorned with cuts, volume the fourth manuscript, which is this particular one I'm looking at at the moment, it's uh, Retrospections. and adorned with cuts means simply that she has um, uh, illustrated a lot of the material uh, with watercolours uh, that are associated with the writing itself.
0: 1782, Chapter 29th, Reading Parties, etc. On Saturday 2nd June 1782, an old French woman came begging to us covered in rags and sores. My mother took her in out of charity and bought her two cotton negligees. She taught us all French capitally, and as capitally taught us how to make mushroom soup and soup maigre. It was our chief amusement after our lesson to gather mushrooms and herbs for our regale. With her goodwill, she would have us superadded added frogs, etc., but we declined that part of it.
4: If you think about Retrospections itself as the one text that's available for The normal reader. Then you have to think about this as a very ornate literary
1: production, but it's also um, a fanciful literary version of her life. Some aspects of life for women show just how difficult preserving one's modesty could be, especially within the larger family of cousins.
0: 1784, chapter 38. A family breakup, various frolics. I was always an immolated victim for Sir John at the instigation of his sisters, romped and kissed most unmercifully, whilst in vain I roared for succour from my friend William and Mammy Shortall, neither just interfere and could only growl and turn up their eyes at a distance. My wild cousin, not content with his nursery freaks, was continually mistaking our door for his And indeed, one night riotously burst in as we were popping into bed and clamorously demanded where his little cousins were and railed that we were not forthcoming. We stood on chemise, peppering behind the curtains. Being very tipsy, he searched the bed, swearing he would not leave the room till he saw we were safe lodged. At length he found us wrapped up in the hangings and held us fast till my mother dragged him away whilst we, in the greatest fight, expected every moment he would make us figure out in our primitive loveliness.
4: When she was published in the 1920s, 1929, 1930, uh, interesting people reviewed her. Elizabeth Bowen reviewed her, didn't like her. Didn't like her because she felt she let the Anglo-Irish down. And Elizabeth Bowen had a very strong sense of who she was and what she was. Um, Virginia Woolf uh, reviewed her and thought it was hilariously funny, where the girls are, um, they have a chamber pot and the men are housed in a dormitory and the chamber pot spills.
0: 1780. Chapter Twenty-Third, Visit to Castle Blunden. Our room was a small closet in the upper storey with a window looking out on a dark lobby which parted it from a large barrack room where all the gentlemen dressed and lay. We had only poor Mammy Shorthall, the family dry nurse, to protect us from their waggeries. And many a time their boisterous mirth brought the poor old soul to our assistance. She was the counterpart of our old Mary. One day, in a hurry, we found ourselves without pomatum and had a great battle for the scrappings of the pomatum pot and the use of the powder puff when we were startled by a loud tittering at the lobby window we found to our great confusion that we forgot to draw the window curtain and the whole set of gentlemen were stationed giggling at the casement where they had heard our fracas and seen our tears besides catching us en chemise or hard by. With the assistance of Mammy Shorthol we routed them back to their barrack but no sooner than the victory gained than another disaster completely undid us. We in our confusion, (laughs) overturned, the pot de chambre, and the two doors being opposite, the whole contents meandered across the lobby into their barrack.
1: (laughs) The original handwritten and bound retrospections of an outcast is safely held in the library and archive collection in Trinity College Dublin, and treasured by Assistant Librarian Dr Jane Maxwell of the Manuscripts and Archives Research Collections.
3: Yes, it looks like a book, so you're looking at it here. It's about fool's cap size. There's about 250 pages in it. It has um, a homemade binding of a sort of a dun-coloured linen. Um, the, paper was, the, the, the paper is bound together in small little booklets. Probably she did that herself. She stitched them into booklets and then she stitched the whole thing into this binding. She put this linen cover on it and she wrote on the outside, on the spine, exactly. This is the thing that makes it look like a book. Manuscript, her name and the date. Um, there's a couple of things to note here. First of all, she had no public ambition. Her entire existence and her reputation existed entirely entirely. In her domestic, no, a, an expanded domestic circle, but a ne- domestic circle, her reputation, what she took her self-esteem from was her reputation within her family and her her singing, her music, her art, her poetry and this were for private um, dissemination among her family. Um, if it had been intended to be a book, why would she have gone to the trouble to make it look like a book if it was going to eventually be a book? That's one thing. But it also fits into a well-established tradition of women making their manuscripts look like books. And it wasn't about modesty, although there definitely was um, um, a sort of a a societal general frowning on women publishing, because women were supposed to shut up a little more than that. They weren't supposed to make a public noise. Um, So it wasn't only about modesty. It wasn't only about a cultural repression, um, which prohibited women from speaking publicly, it actually also was a sort of a conservative, a conservative approach by women. They wanted to control who had access to their material. They did not want to hand it over to another person, the publisher, who would then have opinions. Um, so this is actually a decision on her part. She wants it to look like a book and to be treated in the way that a book was. Um, but she didn't want everybody to have access to it. She had no ambitions in that way. So by producing it like this, she got exactly what she wanted. She got her voice on paper and shared it among the, the only audience she was interested in, which was her family.
1: Retrospections is also cinematic at times, as she describes escapades on a trip to a cousin's house.
0: 1788, Chapter 60th, An Odd Family Party. We spent the ensuing week with Ned Eyre, amusing him with our anecdotes about Prince Henry. Our recluse seldom went to those places unless some particular whim occurred to him. The brother, Ned Eyre, and his sister Mrs White carried Jallop, a laxative, in their pockets, which they secretly mixed with the tea and coffee, so that the ladies and gentlemen of the ballroom soon found something else to think of beside Ned Eyre's pale (laughs) protégé. The worthy pair locked the ballroom door and a general confusion ensued. Some were fainting, some weeping, whilst their wicked physicians escaped and drove home.
3: (laughs) I think when she gets into a story, you see her at her comedic best. Um, So one of the, the things that she tells are her memories of... Her childhood and from a historian's point of view this is extraordinary because there are no records of children I mean there are records about children in terms of statistics and so on and um, and you know illness and so on but f- the the inside view of an 18th century childhood just doesn't exist and this is it pretty much um so she tells great stories the house was always full of people and uh, lots and lots of adults all around but they took a great, very little notice of the children, it seemed to me. The children were very uh, unsupervised, you know, which to modernise is just inexplicable. Adults everywhere, never to be seen when the children were getting drunk or setting the music teacher on fire. Um, So she's absolutely wonderful about that what what makes it wonderful is obviously this is a this is a retrospection she's going back over her time so a combination of the fact that she's summarizing but also her style is so succinct that she puts an awful lot into a paragraph so she tells the story of um uh, the children having picnics and uh, dressing up as shepherds and shepherdesses, which was a real literary trope at the time. You know, that's how you convey how idyllic and pastoral your life is. You get about dressed as a shepherd or a shepherdess. Um, so they're having picnics and they're having uh, outdoor feasts and they are got flowers in their hair. But where she really comes on very, very entertainingly is where... Um, they did try to set the music... The boys, her brothers, tried to set the music teacher on fire because she won a, a, car, a hand of cards against them and they weren't having any of that. Um, she, They got drunk. On more than one occasion, the children got drunk. Now, there's a lot of drunkenness in the memoir, um, but the children got drunk because, uh, you know, um, uh, fermented fruit had been thrown out for the pigs and, of course, they ate it and they just got drunk or they found drink and they drank it and they got drunk. And... Uh, <laughs> The, the no consequences ever spoken about, it. and this is described at, as the height of hilarity.
0: Seventeen seventy-two, chapter the fifth, youthful pranks. In days of prattling infancy, led by young wandering ecstasy. Otway and I were great gardeners, and having got old Mahoney, the gardener's helper, one day to ourselves, the whole set bullied him into digging up a fine plantation of young laurels, which we planted in the waste garret, having previously carried up heaps of earth in our bibs, and an old backgammon box. The owl fool did nothing but cry about his laurels every ten minutes, exclaiming Hannah Mandiel, Hannah Mandiel, that is my soul to the devil, but you're playing the red devil with the place, as we tore up the garret flooring for it. The whole lobby ceiling afterwards came down...
1: Music is a major part of Dorothea's life and she writes about how her attendance at the Beggar's Opera in Dublin in 1779 caused her to laugh too loud and resulted in her Dublin relatives chiding her for getting carried away.
0: 1779, Chapter 17th, A Play Coteries, Balls and Suppers The play was the beggar's opera, and it being the first thing of the kind I had ever seen, I did nothing but laugh and cry during the whole representation, for which I was rated by Mrs Fleming, who declared it was quite against the rules of polite decorum and betrayed a vulgar rusticity to laugh or cry at a playhouse. Nor was my cousin without a lecture from my aunt for talking too loud in the green room to a pretty gentleman.
1: She also writes about popular songs of the day. Molly Thor," Grauma Creek, The Soldier Tired... She talks about playing Handel's water music and the oratorio, the Messiah, and about playing duets with her sister at the harpsichord. Dorothy is particularly fond of her music teacher, Mrs O'Hara, who sings and plays the harpsichord. So they've got a new harpsichord. The harpsichord comes
4: in after the great frost, okay?
0: Mrs O'Hara had an unbound variety of the finest and most touching ears, which she sang for me whenever I pleased, and we often sat whole hours by moonlight at the harpsichord.
4: Like the settings are all always beautiful. You should never underestimate her writing. Like she'll give you setting, she'll give you colour, she'll give you temperature, she'll give you she'll. Get all of your senses involved in everything that she tells you. And there's, she just talks about it, the moonlight, sitting at the, the harpsichord in the moonlight. She's singing and I listening. In Rapture Round, so we get a little quotation in there, I was then of a romantic age.
0: All around me was romance, in a retreat beautiful as the Garden of Eden. And in short, everything conspired to increase that sensibility, keen and sharp as a two-edged sword which ever attended me from youth to age, and always preyed on me when I nourished it with the blindest vehemence and fondly cherished the viper that made successful misfortunes intolerable. I often left the harpsichord in hysterical fits of crying without knowing why or wherefore, and Mrs O'Hara, pleased with an auditress who felt her music, indulged my foible even to madness thus passed the first
4: the first part of this summer so that self-awareness the fact that she feeds her sensibility and that she gets praised for it and that's this is not a one event a one-off event it happens several times in the text where she's at a lecture or she's at an opera and she becomes so involved that she goes into hysterics or she starts crying or she's just oversensitive to everything and always whether this is part of what she's constructing for us, she's always praised for it. It's really important that your sensibilities be heightened.
1: Despite her love of music, her beautiful singing voice, her ability to play harpsichord, to paint well, to write poems and plays, and her fashion sense, none of this helped her to get a husband, which, according to society at that time, would have been her and every other woman's primary goal in life.
3: She was brought up to present to be to have all the accomplishments that would get her a husband and she was also because she was a singer and she wrote her own songs and she sang mu- she sang and she played music that was an accomplishment and that's the thing you would do in 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 the private public life of your family so she did all that but nothing came of it so she would go to a wedding as a bridesmaid or a member of the bride's party and she'd have a, a nice dress and a clear articulated purpose of the nice dress was that she would get a husband and she would come home without a husband and this went on for however long and the stress on somebody who was obliged to do it for a, a purpose that was supposed to come to pass pretty quickly you know um, the fact that you had to do it in public and you'd be mocked all the time for either being in love or not having a suitor and the fact that deep down she was a homebody and she really didn't want to be doing any of this at all the pressure must have been enormous. I'm not saying any of this causes, I don't know what causes a mental illness and I don't know, can something, does something cause a mental illness, illness or do you get a mental illness which then expresses itself in the way in which you live your life and you just do it differently now. But um, it's very interesting that what she wanted was to stay at home and not be mocked by people um, for putting on her best show and ending up with nothing.
1: John Rowe, as a character, a possible suitor, is introduced in retrospections of an outcast as one of the local gentleman farmers when they moved to the New Glebe House in Notgrafon, now New Inn, where they were obliged to live for three months in the year for her father's parish work.
0: 1789, Chapter 65th, Human Phoenix Church Fracca. One morning, two horsemen galloped down one I knew to be Andrew and supposed the other to be the hero in question when Anne ran up in a great hurry and lugged out all my morning finery as Mr John Rowe was below. After dressing in a hurry for this strange bow, I descended to the parlour where sat the redoubted hero and his brother Andrew. I was immediately struck with his interesting appearance as he had something of a melancholy cast about him. His features were very intelligent. His eyes pierced the soul. His person was much taller than his brothers. He was certainly infinitely handsomer, but seemed very silent, distant and reserved.
1: Our descriptions of John Rowe cover all angles.
0: 1789, chapter 66th a charming fellow. Nature had moulded him as if she meant to give a perfect model of elegance and perfection, but the character of goodness in his countenance was his most prominent charm. Whether grave or gay, every turn of his feature gave the stamp of amiability.
1: There are different theories as to whether Dorothea was ever the focus of John Rowe's attentions, or if he was teasing her, or if the affair was simply a figment of her lively imagination. In the churchyard of Carrick and Shore, Dr. Mary Breen and Johnny Fitzpatrick reflect on her supposed romance with John Rowe, and question whether he was ever socially equal to Dorothea. Her father had four livings, right,
4: so he had a very sizable income, something like mm-hmm. 1800, mm-hmm. Um, Pounds at the time, or whatever, a lot of money, a, a lot of money um, when he died. So he would have been here. He was in Notgrafen, He I can't remember the three other ones. Kilchelen, I think, was or so. Yeah, Kilmore, I think. Yeah. As
1: well. yeah. So
4: the. Uh, Because they collected tithes in all of those areas, Mm. and that was what the income was, there was a lot of dispute about them being absentee uh, rectors. So he had to, the Archbishop forced him to build a house in New Inn.
1: Three months a year, I think, was it? He spent there. So that's
4: how she came up across John Rowe. John Rowe. Yeah, because he was part of, Rockwell was just down the road from there. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: Would they have been seen as being in the same social class?
4: The Herberts would have been from the, Her- well, the Muckras yeah. Herberts, right, okay. and they were connected everywhere. So they went to visit everywhere, like Curramoar to Lord Waterfords, they were, uh, they Waterford were, and yeah, then, and the, yeah, so they considered themselves way above yeah. the level of really? the Rose. The Rose were Yeoman farmers. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and even when she describes what their house is like, it's like a shack, yeah, and they're. Well,
3: no, no impressed with
4: the, with the no, description. No, wrong, because. Wrong no. Wrong. <laughs> and they're very rough and ready in comparison thing, yeah, to the Herberts. Yeah. yeah, the Herberts are genteel. Okay. And so, what,
1: why would she have uh, fancied herself as Mrs. Rowe then? <laughs> I don't know. It's
4: whether it's a literary device or it's, um, you know, sort of wishing herself into a situation that she's not in. So, she doesn't appear to have been very attractive number mm-hmm. one okay so she says that herself she's very yeah. small um, and that she praises all the other pretty women that are around and she's mm-hmm. really really concerned about how the the jepsons you know one of them is really pretty these are the bells oh, these Jepson, are yeah. oh yeah so and then then when it comes to herself she says i never grew to any great size no. um, she seems to have been not terribly attractive okay knows. everything about her yeah so she when she sees John Rowe there, mm. just something happens to her like a te- she's young when it starts like she's what 17, 18 years old she sees him he's handsome he's gregarious he's really interesting people talk about him and because her only way out of that large family of sons and daughters was to get married like mm. that was mm. what other what opportunities did you have mm. so she saw him and she thought yes he'd make a good match for me <laughs> and other people were telling her that he would and they spoke about him. Yeah, um, and he seemed
1: to have been trying to charm her.
4: It's her version you, her see. you see. That's, it's her version so he does flirt with her and we don't know if he's we don't know in the end if he's making fun of her or teasing her mm. or and again if you're writing your own memoir and you're in love with a man you who pays to. you a little bit of attention yes. then you may exploit that to yes be a great deal of attention. Yes, we're, we're getting a literary version of who she is.
1: Despite the role of women being very circumscribed there was great freedom in other circles and surprising acceptance of people from foreign lands and for those who chose to dress and act in non-traditional ways.
0: 1780, Chapter 21 A Lunatic Wanderer Charitable Benefactors About this time, a young person appeared here, dressed in men's clothes, who gave out that he was a woman. He called himself Miss Gore and said he had escaped from a madhouse where his relations had put him on account of an attachment they disapproved of. He said he was of a genteel family but he would not tell their names and what between his flightiness and reserve we could never arrive at any certainty either as to his sex or situation. He really had all the appearance of being long confined. His shoulders seemed to have been tied back. His legs were cramped and he shrieked at the name of a straight waistcoat. His face was very handsome, with the finest pair of black eyes, long dark eyelashes and arched eyebrows possible. When dressed in male attire he appeared like a woman, but in women's clothes looked coarse and masculine. He told such piteous tales and sang such melancholy songs that he quite softened all the ladies' hearts, so that they were always bestowing some charitable donation on him. But he would never take money.
1: Tolerance for violence generally and violence against women in particular at every level of society is commonplace in her writings
3: and quite shocking. There's a lot of violence in society. There's a lot of violence against women. There can be no doubt about that. It's unusually high levels of violence and sexual assault against women. If you look at the newspapers at the time, um, it honestly seemed like no woman was safe. Now, there's a great acceptance to a certain extent of women um, I know we all know that at a political level, at a legal level, a woman had very little identity. A married woman had no identity, literally no legal identity. Um, she, her identity was subsumed into that of her husband. So, um, so, but this permeated every part of society. So the idea that um, a woman was a property was not just a, a sort of a, a formal way of acknowledging the fact that she went from her father to her husband with money, money changed hands. They were, there were also women who were assaulted because they were seen as less. Um, if families had allowed their, the adult women within the family to control their own access to money, there wouldn't have been this whole tradition of abducting them. You know, Because if, you, if a woman has access to her own resources, she can make her own choices. Whereas at the time, uh, a young woman was in control of her father, if the father said no to a groom, a prospective groom, the groom could, would kidnap the woman. And that's basically an invitation to rape somebody because once a a, a young woman has spent an overnight with a man, it's considered that she is now married to him, she has had sexual intercourse with him, (laughs) she has been raped. Um, So that can't, you can't go back from that. So they marry off their daughters to people who have stolen them, you know. So this shows, even within families, a very, very low respect for women. so you'll see there's a couple of inc- incidences in uh, Dorothea's writing where she mentions in one, she just mentions in a casual way that she's going to a ball and that uh, Lady uh, Barrymore was supposed to be there but her lord had given her such a beating that she had to stay at home and that is it, that's all she says, literally nothing else, no comment. Chapter 115th,
0: 1794 On our return to Carrick, I stood bridesmaid to my old friend Sally Jeffson, who was happily disposed of to Mr Roth, a very fine, dashing young man of good property in the county Kilkenny. The wedding was quite a private one, but we had a flaming assembly in Carrick some days after. We had the South Cork Band and the presence of Lord Barrymore, their colonel. We were to have the young and beautiful Lady Barrymore, but her lord had given her a good beating which kept her at home. Mr James Butler, Lord Ormond's brother, and many other fine beaux graced the assemblage, which was very splendid and numerous.
3: Now that's in the retrospections where she is um, taking on a more controlled voice, but in her the diary which is a personal private thing and she has accounts of her um, brother-in-law the mandevils um basically he was a, 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 his wife was a victim of the significant domestic abuse thrown out of the house in her underwear basically barefoot having to walk in the cold and the rain to get some sort of sucker for her family um and him hitting his small child and knocking him off a table so much so that his life was in considered to be in danger and uh, so, this goes on. Not all the time, but it's certainly permeated Irish society and our Irish family life as well. It is um, a sort of an output of uh, a disrespect for women, as uh, you know. So, uh, and and it was it it's hard to read.
0: Extract from a diary fragment. Saturday, 2nd May, 1807. This day four years ago, my father took ill. Would to God I had gone instead of him. It is wonderful that I should live to see so many beloved ones laid in their graves, hated by all and a burthen to myself. I even grudge myself my own existence as much as others grudge it to me but death is denied to the unhappiest wretch and the sweets of existence precious even to the outcast Dolly Herbert. Mr Nick arrived from Kilkenny this day and this day four years ago he went to express for Dr Ryan, but all to no purpose. Towards the
1: end of Retrospections of an Outcast, Dorothea Herbert's discovery that John Rowe had married, blurted out by Nano, her adored sister-in-law, reveals her mental unravelling.
0: 1804, Chapter 140th. I shall always regard him as my husband, though his renegade armour has placed a barrier of vicious obstacles to my claims, Virtue led me early to him. I met him as a bride adorned for her husband. No surreptitious wedlock can invalidate the just claims of the miserably unfortunate Dorothea Rowe.
1: Some pages further on she shows how she was finding it increasingly difficult to cope with life, following not only John Rowe's marriage to another, but the combined traumas she had endured piled one upon another after the sudden death of her favourite brother, Otway from a freak riding accident, murders in her own house due to agrarian uprisings, and her father's sudden death
0: from a fever. 1806, Chapter 142 Here I must mention that I had other woes and insults to combat besides the cruelty of my unworthy husband. Within two years, I had more reason than ever to lament the death of my father and brother Otway. My family rose in cabal against me and treated me in the most savage manner. I can no more account for their brutality than for the ill-treatment I received from John Rowe, unless that they really wanted to get rid of me and divide my wretched fortune amongst them.
1: In her extracts from fragments of her diary from 1807, an even more distressed and different Dorothy emerges. One who's obviously in mental distress, alone in her room, suspicious of everyone around her, calling almost every woman a whore and banned from her church for causing a show. Manhandled by her younger brother Nick, now head of the household, and even the servants are in on controlling her physically. <laughs>
0: Oh, they shook my hand so lovingly and made so many professions of love that they struck me so. <clears throat> <Do you> <throat> Two whores, two whores who hold correspondence with the witch John Rose Mother. Two whores, two whores who hold correspondence with the witch John Rose Mother. And oh they drank tea here and they spent the day as usual. And they shook my hand so lovingly, made so many professions of love. Oh, and how do you do? And oh. Thursday, 13th August, 1807. I was again this morning dragged upstairs and laid with brutal violence on the floor of my bedchamber. Fortunately, I happened to be stronger for such an attack as I was the other day, else I am certain I would have died under the usage I received. Every vein in my arm is starting and covered over with black bruises from his iron grasp, a shameless set of people looking on unmoved. My lady housemaid, indeed, interferes so far as to help him drag me up and then so condescending as to bid me be quiet. His hardened old mother and sisters were totally unmoved.
1: Journaling, keeping a record of your life to get a handle on your thoughts is a technique recommended by creative coaches and mentors and therapists in mental health care settings today. This practice came intuitively to Dorothea.
2: God, she was way ahead of her time, wasn't she? She was way ahead of her time. And what I'm, as I'm reading it too, I'm really enjoying her use of capital letters because there's something very empowering about putting in capital letters where they don't belong. And so I think I you know, I think we get more of her voice even in how, you know, idiosyncratically she's she's putting them in, but they're great fun. Poet and
1: creative writing coach Anne Tannen sees Dorothea Herbert as a groundbreaking writer who used writing as a way to get a handle on her world and on her
2: own mind. When I when when I was looking at the at even the images and, 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 and some of the some of the entries in, in, in her diary or in, in, in the memoir, you you get that very strong sense of a woman who is making sense of herself on the page. We always write first for ourselves. And, and when you think of journaling, and one of the powerful things about it is, is there is no censorship, there's no judgment, there is, you don't have to be sensible or linear in your thinking. And you certainly don't have to be constant in your, in your thoughts. And I'm thinking of, the, of that great quote from Whitman that says, do I contradict myself uh, very well then? I contradict myself.
1: Dorothy's resentment at her lot as an old maid and not being recognised for her multiple talents seeds through many of her writings, especially in later years.
0: An address to old maids by one of the sisterhood. Just entered on that certain state of life when I no longer girl, am yet no wife. I mean the station of a good old maid when life's more glittering prospects seem to fade and to the world we seem as persons dead. Come then, ye ancient sisterhood, be wise, be virtuous and be good, Good good-humoured, affable, polite, entirely free from spleen and spite, indulgent, gentle, mild and kind, then happiness you'll surely find. The good your virtues will revere, the bad to hurt you shall despair. Oh, should this happy lot be mine, in virtue's Milky Way I'd shine, like to a kind propitious star whose influence is felt afar. Nor shall I ever be afraid to live and die a good old maid.
1: The legacy of her retrospections, her drawings, and collection of poetry show Miss Dorothea Herbert as a doozy, a splendid, unique, one of a kind. Still waiting to be discovered.